You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part one of this podcast with Justin Curry, the charismatic, talented singer and main songwriter of Scottish band Delamitri. Now, before the interview starts, just a quick reminder that there are many other interviews to be heard. Please check them out. Okay, on with the interview. And did I mention that Justin is Scottish? First of all, I just want to tell you that I'm 44% English. percent <laughs> English. 24% Irish, 18% Spanish, 6% Swedish. I reckon that's Viking. And I found out this week that I'm 6% Ashkenazi Jew, which who, who originated in the Rhineland, which is where I live in Cologne. And I now have a German passport. So I just want to get this English-Scottish thing <laughs> out of the way (laughs) immediately did you do one of those dna ancestry things then yeah i did you should do one i highly recommend it because because ashkenazi ashkenazi jews seem to come up a lot yeah well basically what the the history of the ashkenazi jew which i only know from this week is that in the (laughs) middle ages they were here they were uh pushed out uh you know from uh from cologne to the east and really right. were then in Eastern Europe, all as great swathe of Eastern Europe. So right. were um, travellers or Romani, you could call them. Right. And right. we knew that my father's father was a Romani. So that <clears throat> must have been the origination. And of course, um, uh, they were decimated during the Second World War in, in, yeah. the, the, in the camps. And um, yeah. so c- most of my relations are actually in America and I know none of them. Anyhow, that's right. my DNA. I want to get out of that. I want to go into your <laughs> history a bit. Um, do you come from a musical family? Because I know your father uh, was a choir master for the Scottish National Orchestra. So yeah. how much music was there around you when you grew up? And what sort of influence did that have on you? Well, I was thinking about this recently because if you'd asked me this when I was in my 20s, I would have said there wasn't much music. I mean, we didn't, uh, I mean, there wasn't a piano. Uh, There was a harpsichord sitting in the hall that we we used to play every now and then. But I don't, there wasn't any communal music. There wasn't much singing along or stuff like that. I mean, it was my dad's job. So he had a study and he would be locked in that study generally not making a noise, just, I suppose, just working on scores and things. And and also, my dad's job involved, seemed to involve more admin than music. So he always had an office in the house uh, and with lots of office equipment. And he had a secretary and you never heard any music coming out of the, coming out of the office. So you were more likely to hear music coming out of uh, the living room with my mum playing a bit of uh, light jazz or opera or something. So I never really, compared to other families, I never thought that we were particularly musical. But now looking back, yeah, I mean, we were taken to see classical concerts and operas and things when we were kids, which which we hated, you know, because they were terribly boring. But we were, we were exposed to a lot of culture, you know, a lot of, um, you know, our mum was an actor. So we uh, by the time she had kids... She'd given up her career, but she still did quite a lot of uh, like sort of university acting and things. So we used to go and see her in plays quite a lot. So yeah, we, we were we were exposed to lots of stuff, but it didn't. None of it ever felt particularly um, familial. Uh, you know, if we, if you compared our me and my sisters' upbringing to 
other people we knew, I mean, they were having, you know, they were getting the guitars out after dinner and, uh, you know, they would have parties and people, the neighbours and friends, parents, friends would come around and sing pop songs and things. We didn't have any of that. Yeah, although what you say, I mean, okay, there's one side, which is this getting the guitars out and that's other families and so on. And that's very then, you know, a musical family. Um, Hmm. But certainly there was, uh, I would imagine there's a a cult air of cultural support there. Whereas if you look at most families, and I don't know, I mean, my family is not average either, but my father was a market trader. uh, My mother was a housewife. And, you know, that the, the music, that we heard would would be a, something like Glenn Miller or something like that that would be yeah. my mother's taste. And there wasn't an atmosphere of, there is an aspect, a cultural aspect, which is an area that you could get into within your life. Did you feel that you always had some sort of support to do something culturally in your life? Yeah, we definitely had that. So, uh, and I was the only one of the three of us that seemed to show that bent and that you know, I formed a band when I was at school, you know, and uh, I went to a lot of gigs when I was quite young. So yes, I was definitely encouraged, especially by Barbara, our mother. Uh, I mean, our dad wasn't around much; she was she was away a lot, uh, working. Um, but yes, there, there was no certainly no discouragement from from our father, and and I got. I got lots of encouragement from, from my mum. I, I, I used to discuss, I would come home from school really upset because somebody in my band had shown a lack of commitment. And uh, my mum would talk me through it, you know, the sort of pains of, of artistic collaboration and all that sort of stuff. How old were you? So, yeah, that was, that, what was that? How old were you? Uh, I mean, this is when, probably when I was 14 or something like that, 13 or four, 14, I would say. Yeah, probably... The band probably got together when I was 14. I think so you were taking right. it pretty seriously early on, really, if you were oh, having I mean, a discussion really, with your mother. <laughs> I was a very serious young man. Uh, yeah, really, really serious. I mean, I, I, as soon as punk rock sort of showed me the way and uh, that you didn't have to be a virtuoso of anything, you could just grab an instrument and start expressing yourself. And if you had any any kind of originality, then you could probably get a gig. And if you had any sort of drive, you could probably get a gig. So as soon as I found that way of doing things, uh, I was completely, completely obsessed by it. You know, what was the what was the thrill? When was your first gig, and what was the thrill of doing that? Even if it was a school gig or whatever it was, what yeah. what did it mean to you actually to be on stage and to be the focus uh, of attention and to be able to play the music that you wanted to play? Well, the, the first the first gig we did was organised by our drummer Paul Tiagi, uh, and we only found out a few days before that, in fact, we just thought it was a sort of local disco at his his town hall. He lived in a place called Bears Den, which is a kind of suburb on the edge of Glasgow. Uh, and anyway, he booked his this gig, uh, a headline gig at the Bears Den Borough Hall, which is quite a big venue, but probably holds about eight hundred people or something. Um, but then he informed us a few days before that it was actually a benefit for the, lo- for the local Liberal Party. Which <laughs> is like, who couldn't be less cool if we tried? I suppose it could have been the Conservative Party. It could have been slightly worse, uh, which I was absolutely furious about. But by that point, it was too late. But it turned out to be a really good gig. It was just a bunch of, uh, it was just a bunch of sort of 
15 year olds and uh, and maybe some 20 somethings um and we were we must have been absolutely horrendous but i remember i, was, I remember loving it because the room was full and i suppose because it was a political benefit they all they just kind of nodded their heads and and patronized us so it was a quite a quite a forgiving baptism what was it like musically oh uh, it would have, we'd have done one cover we, we'd have done Tired of Waiting by the Kinks. I think that was the first cover we did. But the rest of it was just all very monotonous little guitar riffs and some very odd lyrics thrown over the top. You wouldn't say it was even melodic. It would have just, not atonal, but uh, not melodic either. I tend to just, me and the, the other guitar player that wrote the lyrics, we tended just to sing one note through everything. And the guitars didn't do much. Much different. I mean, God knows what it sounded like. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We went from that to becoming postcard copyists very quickly. We 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 got really obsessed by Orange Juice and Joseph Key. Um, and we, I actually discovered some footage of a very, very early Delamitri from when we were, you know, like 15, 16. Uh, and it's horrendous because we're just aping the wee sort of moves of Orange Juice and Joseph Key. It's incredibly embarrassing. You know, there was obviously we're desperate in love with these men that are five or six years older than us. And we kind of worship them and we're just completely copying them. What about your love of words? Because you're... You know, one of the things that has really been an identification factor uh, of your music is your lyrics. And I just wonder whether at school there were particular books you read or particular things that you liked, which have always stayed with you. And you love the phrasing of, of in these books or you love something about them or this is something that came up later. Yeah, I, well, the lyrics, there might, there might have been books. I mean... I did read books, <laughs> uh, and it was English. Was English and art were the only subjects I could cope with at, at school that I, I didn't find incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I read Sylvia Plath quite early, and I think that was probably quite a big influence. But I, I read Sylvia Plath because we had the books in the in the house, and Sylvia Plath's quite accessible when you're a teenager because it's very, it's incredibly angst-ridden. Um, it, it, and it, it really appeals. I mean, obviously, things like Catcher in the Rye. And, um, uh, me, me and my sisters read quite a lot of Ted Hughes as well. Those books were hanging around. Um, but mainly the, the, the impetus to write lyrics was just turning on the John Peel show and hearing bands sing about things that you, you wouldn't expect rock bands to sing about, you know, singing about, I don't know, being on the dole or singing about sing, writing love songs in quirky, new, original ways, um, writing political songs. You know, the, the punk and post-punk and new wave, uh, lyrically everything got kind of blown wide open. I mean, prior to that, it was all glam rock and prog rock in, in my world. And the, the, the lyrics in prog rock are just really awful they're incredibly obscure and uh very hard to relate to they t 
tend to mainly involve sort of dragons and pirates and things. So um, again, just just listening to punk rock really allowed you to think, oh, I, I could do this. You know, I could write a, a Daft Love song. I mean, what you mentioned, you know, the first gig and the, and it was uh, a Liberal Party benefit. And also, you've also sort of just mentioned some sort of political awareness that you had at that yeah. time, that we're roughly the same age. And yeah. the late 70s and, and early 80s, um, I saw them as a really shit period. In musical terms, they were fantastic. In political and social terms, there was this yeah. massive upheaval. So I was, you know, I was down south. I was in a town called Chelsea, which is north of London. And I moved to London in my early 20s. And um, the world seemed horrendous at that time with yeah. misogyny, racism, homophobia, you name it. It was, it was all there. What was, what was your world like? In, in those terms, did you find that you were sort of, that music provided an escape for you, even in those early days, from the wider world? Or was it a way to see the wider world? It was definitely, it definitely was a way to see the wider world. I, the, the escape narrative isn't true of a band like Delamitri, who, who are uh, firmly middle class, you know, and... Uh, I came from an incredibly privileged background in that I had a very, very understanding parents, uh, went to a very sort of, uh, not a private school, but, but to all intents and purposes, it may as well have been a private school. I had a private school ethos. I mean, it wasn't fee paying, but it, it may as well have been. It was a fucking hideous place. Uh, but yeah, but not, not in any way school of hard knocks or, or rough. Um, so it, there was no, you know, my life's trajectory was going to be go to university, do an arts degree, and I don't know, fuck knows what, what the trajectory was after that, but certainly go to university for three or four years. Um, and the, what, the, what the music thing did was just completely change that direction. And uh, the, funnily enough, you know, you're talking about this sort of political culture at the time. You've got the kind of, that kind of really sort of entrenched late 70s, unreconstructed sexism and racism, as you're saying. And then you had the Thatcher Revolution, which created a sort of, in, in my world, created a, a, a sort of mild, uh, disdainful form of protest, but not real protest. There wasn't real anger uh, in, in the, the, the way that there was, you know, during the miners' strike or something. The, the Thatcher Revolution... Uh, we sort of sneered at it. We, we, we did absolutely fuck all about it. Uh, but because of the uh, because of Thatcher's um, sort of drive to make everybody an, an entrepreneur, there were schemes available that meant you could leave school and um, sign on to a, like a, a yacht scheme or something, and get a bit of money every week that would pay for rare. So, so actually. They, Ironically, and I know Alan McGee from Creation said this. Ironically, the Thatcher, the early period of the Thatcher government was really beneficial to people like us that wanted to go arty and wanted to go and just sign on and uh, not be hassled into some shitty job and just rehearse as much much as we could. And effectively, that's what that was the kind of making of us. In that, um, you know, we could sign on. Uh, and rehearse cheaply and rehearse like six days a week, you know, and that was really where we learned our stuff after I'd left school and, and uh, once I was kind of out in the world. 
there seems to be quite a long period until the the, the first album um, was released, um, and that you were together as a band. So there's you know there's this long lead up to it in that period, and uh, I presume uh, you were listening to lots of indie bands in that period, yeah, and and following those. What what did who did you want to be musically at that point as a band? Well, we started off once Ian joined the band in '82. Prior to that, we were just we just wanted to be Orange Juice and Joseph Key. That was it. Uh, and then once Ian joined, we tried to be a cross between television and Captain Beefheart. We didn't sound like that at all, but that's what we were aiming for in terms of the guitar arrangements. We wanted, we didn't want any chords. We wanted all the guitars to be single lines or maybe arpeggiated lines. They wanted to sort of fit those together with very melodic bass and quite strange drums. We were really obsessed with the first Feelies album as well. That was a big influence. Well, they, they did use a lot of chords, unlike um, unlike Captain Beefheart. But yeah, we were, we were obsessed by Beefheart, the Feelies television, uh, and uh, and obsessed with writing songs in a collective way, writing songs with all four members con- uh, contributing. Was so, that difficult then? Was that difficult to do that? Yeah, that, that was really, that was really hard. I mean, that, as I say, that's why we were rehearsing five or six days a week. We, you know, we rehearsed like six, seven, eight hours a day. It was nuts. And I mean, I, I suppose I was kind of the ringmaster in that I, we would come in and I would say, I would just point at one of the guitar players and say, just play something, you know, every day. So there was a lot of kind of jamming around little loops of figure, guitar figures. And then we would try and mash things together. Oh, that doesn't work. That's the wrong key. Oh, that doesn't work. That's the wrong tempo. And eventually we'd find all these bits that we'd worked on and come, come up with parts for based on something that somebody, that one of the guitar players had played. We would sort of fit those together, make some kind of structure that I would record on cassette. And then I would take that home and write a bunch of words over the top and then come back in and maybe dick around a bit with the structure, but not much. But that literally took two or three months per song. You know, uh, it was an incredibly labor intensive way of doing things. I mean, the end result was we got the, the first album. I listen to it now, and it's despite lots of things that are very embarrassing about it. Musically, it's it's very dense and complicated, and it's I think it's quite original, you know, in its own way. Um, because it's not, it really is constructed in quite an arty way. It's uh, it's kind of a patchwork thing. Um, and it, eventually that became so painful and time consuming that Ian suggested that we, that we tried writing different, in a different way. And he just said, look, why don't we just write things separately? Uh, and that was, that ended up being a big change in what, what we did. You know. What was your expectation of the album? That was on Chrysalis, I think, wasn't it? The first yeah. album? Yeah. yeah. So, w- when you got that signed, there must have been a sort of particular expectation about how this is going to go. What what was your expectation and how well, did that pan out? Well, we were, we had very low expectations commercially because we were signed to an indie offshoot of Christus called Big Star. Uh, you know, one of these pseudo indie labels that all the major labels uh, launched in the early 80s. Uh, so and we, we we weren't given a huge amount of money. We were given twenty five thousand quid, uh, which was enough to to 
put us on wages, you know, so, you know, allowed us to go full-time, allowed us to buy a bit of gear. Um, and it would, you know, that money probably lasted just like a year and a half or something. Um, but there was no commercial pressure from Chrysalis because we were on this indie label. I guess the expectation from the label was, oh, maybe they'll get into the indie chart and one of the singles will be in the top 10 of the indie singles chart or something, or maybe they'll get a good review. Um, but this rather odd thing happened when we, after we signed to Chrysalis. We were just getting on with making the first album. We were, we were quite well thought of in the weekly music press, you know, the enemy melody maker and sounds covered us favorably because we were part of that post postcard scene, you know, and we were getting better. We were starting to do some quite interesting things, I think. But then what happened was our manager managed to get the attention of the editor of melody maker, a guy called Ian Pye, um, to get interested in what we were doing at Chrysler. So she sent him three, the first three songs that we'd recorded, they were unmixed, as I remember, that we'd recorded for the first album. So she sent Ian Pye these songs and he went apeshit about them. And then kind of off his own back, put us on the cover of Melody Maker before we released anything. We'd, put, we'd, we'd released one indie single like a year and a half before or something or a year before. So all of a sudden we were being touted by the Melody Maker as the future of, you know, of British indie pop. Uh, and at the, so then what happened was that the the uh, the A&R department at Chrysalis phoned up the press department and said, who's this band, Delamitri? We should sign them. And uh, the press department said, you signed them six months ago. Uh, so the, so then what happened was the A&R department started putting us under pressure because prior to that, we were just on this little indie offshoot of Christmas and nobody really, nobody knew what the hell we were up to because we weren't spending very much money. So we were just, we, we were flying under the radar. But as soon as this Melody Maker cover happened, um, the record company got extremely nervous and thought, oh, we've got, we've, we've got this precious hip property that they didn't know what to deal with. So then they hummed and hawed about putting the first single out and then they decided that we should wait until we'd finish the album. Anyway, so we, we ended up not releasing anything for, for like six months or something, by which time there'd been a huge backlash because the other music papers, uh, who to a certain extent were more influential, actually, Sounds in the Enemy, thought, well, who the fuck are these guys? You know, they've, they, they put one single, they, they, the Melody Maker put them in the cover with a center spread article and then uh, they never put anything out. This, this, is, this is just fucking hype. Um, so by the time the album came out, we were absolutely savaged by the sounds and, and the enemy. Um, so that was really, that was game over because we were, uh, as you know, you were asking about expectations. There were no commercial expectations for that record. It just had to get good reviews and then we would have done another record and then maybe we could have built an audience and, you know, we played some universities and we could have maybe, yeah, we could have got slightly bigger or reached a slightly wider audience, but without any hullabaloo or, or commercial pressure. Um, so yes, it was fucked. It was totally fucked. Fucked with the fact that a record company just made a complete, complete arse of it, you know? You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But I mean, Chrysalis were just one of, they were even though they were a small major, they were just hideous in those in the eighties. They were the Spandau Ballet record label. There was a lot of cocaine going on. There was a lot of 
you know, A&R guys getting on planes to Glasgow with, you know, somebody in the office they were having an affair with and spending shitloads of money to, you know, to sign, you know, ostensibly hit bands from the town that produced Postcard. And it was, it was a, it was a really horrible culture. It was, uh, uh, it was the antithesis of everything we were about. You know, it, it was kind of glam and uh, and hedonistic, and uh, you know, it, it just wasn't for us at all. We were this little, these little middle class socialists who were trying to do something, you know, original and and, and deeply indie, and it, it just it was the wrong label for that. And when they finally decided to pull the plug on the on the contract you were in america yeah. weren't you how did that feel at that time and um, no we weren't in america we were uh we we actually tried to get them to drop us because they they took up the option on the second album we, we, to our great surprise because we, obviously the whole thing had been a huge commercial and critical failure or not not even a huge failure just a failure uh but then for some weird reason, they took up the second option. I think because we were, it was cheap to do. Uh, they only had to pay us you know, a small amount of money to keep us on the label. And then we realised that they were going to sit on us and force us to write pop songs, uh, which we couldn't do and weren't willing to do. Uh, and we were, so we realised that we were going to get into one of these awful traps that happens to an awful lot of bands where... They're still signed to the label, but the label won't let them record because they're not writing sufficiently uh, commercial material. So the label won't spend any money in the recording studio on the on the artist, which should be illegal. But it's to I think to this day it's not illegal. So we, um, our manager and us, sort of stays to kind of sit in in the offices, and we print up these t-shirts saying "Release the Devils" uh, to try and force. To force them to drop us because we, we because we couldn't work you know we couldn't uh, they wouldn't give us any money to do anything because they, they um considered what we we're doing uncommercial so we tried to compromise and we wrote a sort of pop song called tears and trickery and then they said oh that's quite good write us another three of those and and we said no we're not doing that um fuck off so yes we got into this big sort of battle with christmas and then eventually they dropped us i think maybe spring 86 so it was actually after that that we went to America um, with our sort of last couple of thousand quid, which we spent on airfares. So, um, yeah, that was how that happened. What was the plan with going to America then? If you were at that point, you know, you're at that point, you haven't got a label, you've got yourself out in some way, and you're going off to America with limited money. <laughs> what, well, well, we had no goal? money. <laughs> we had no money. We, we, had, we had two grand in the bank, which we spent on airfares. This, it was a big plan by Barbara Shores, our manager, who's an American woman who'd moved to the UK to uh, make a postcard fanzine. She was obsessed with postcards, as a lot of Californians were in the, the early 80s. Um, but she always had this dream of taking like a Scottish band to, to America and showing, showing them America, which is what she did. Uh, so the plan was spend the last money we had on airfares do a private party um, in New Jersey um, that was being put on by a big fan called Tim Haland, I think. Um, and that was going to raise a couple of thousand dollars, which would allow us to buy a van. And then we were going to go around staying in fans, in most cases, parents' houses, 
where they would put gigs on for us either in their aunt's house or in a record shop or in a local club that they'd hired. Um, because in the intervening years, we'd been writing to all these fans and kind of grooming them to help us. You know, we, you know, we would, can you put, can, could you put a gig on for us? Oh yeah, I'm having a 21st birthday party. Yeah, I'll, I'll rent a club in, in Orlando and we'll sell tickets and we'll give you the money. So that, that's how that worked. And it was, it was budgeted and it was, it sort of depended on selling quite a lot of badges and t-shirts and busking was quite a big part of it. Um, so what happened when we got to the States was the guy who was having the private party who said he was going to sell 200 tickets at 20 bucks a head, he effectively had a nervous breakdown, partly because there was 10 of us sleeping on his living room floor in a small apartment in Jersey Heights. That didn't help. Uh, but he hadn't sold the tickets that he claimed that he'd sold. So he didn't have any money for us. We, he just had a couple hundred bucks. Uh, so then we had to start phoning other fans that we'd been in touch with, saying, could they lend us stuff? Because we were going to hire equipment. We had to borrow all the equipment before we went on the road. We borrowed a van from a commercial van hire place that was run by a Mancunian guy, in, again, in New Jersey. It, it was just insane. The whole thing was absolutely insane. Um, but how formative uh, was that musically? And also, um, yeah, as you know, as people, because, you know, when you travel to another country and when you get that sort of experience, you, you do change. It changes you, especially at yeah. a young age. And also um, you had this musical experience and yeah. you, you're then presumably more open to what's culturally going on in another country. So yeah. I just wondered how that changed you yeah. in both those areas. It, it was completely formative. Um, it was our backpacking year out, you know. Um, it was formative in the sense that it was extremely stressful psychologically because we were hungry all the time. Uh, we, were, we weren't getting enough sleep because we were just pulling over and sleeping in picnic rest areas because we didn't have money for any accommodation at all. Um, we would get fed and watered when we were in a town where a fan was putting on a gig for us. So, you know, their parents would open the very generously and hospitably open the frigidaires to us. Um, so formative in, in, in that sense, it was kind of miraculous that we, we got round the whole circuit. Musically, it was a huge change because American audiences are wildly different from European audiences and everything is a lot more showbiz. You know, everything's about performance and, uh, and sort of showing off. And we learned really quickly to, to respond to that because American audiences teach you that. You know, they, they, they're, they're very, they're extremely vocal. They'll tell you what bits they like and then you just play up to that. And it becomes quite... Uh, histrionic you know um and but that's fun that's really great fun so it, it changes in that six week tour we, we went from being a very earnest slightly shoegazy indie post postcard band to being to being a rock band you know um with guitar solos i mean we didn't realize that we had guitar solos until these guys would go oh and start clapping and on part two of this podcast Justin talks more about that crucial formative period in the States and about the band's successes, including their latest album, recorded after a long hiatus. See you soon. 